Welcome to the Spark Podcast, a podcast for life science leaders that are reaching for the next frontier in drug development. My name is Dirk Arts, and I'm your host of the podcast. I would like to invite you to join us in thought-provoking conversations with forward-thinking life science leaders about what it takes to spark change in our industry and where they already see that happening. Everyone, welcome back to the Spark, um, our podcast. We have an amazing guest uh, speaker today, our guest for the podcast, um, Sam Eels, the co-founder at Lightship, um, a visionary leader in our space. Um, Sam, welcome. Maybe you can um, share a little bit about your background with the audience. Love to uh, hear your journey and how you got here. Sounds great. Thanks for having me on today. Uh, so I'm the co-founder at Lightship. We're a clinical trial service provider that uses flexible approaches and models to um, design and conduct decentralized studies where we use a virtual first approach, uh, but also really focus on making sure that we create an approach in those studies where we can reach patients from anywhere, whether that's at home, telemedicine, or in the clinic as well. And our, our mission is to really um, create a way where we can use our virtual first approaches so that patients and healthcare providers can take part from research in anywhere. And in terms of my background, so I'm an epidemiologist by training. I grew up as a kid thinking the hot zone and those types of books and movies were super interesting and cool and made my way to Emory University and working at the CDC as well, doing a lot of bench work and kind of realized working in the lab was, uh, it could be a little bit lonely being there at three in the morning with your Petri dishes. So I switched a little and focused on, you know, what could I do that would be impactful, um, but also work with people. And that's how I got into clinical research and really got a first job kind of at a public hospital in South Los Angeles that, um, was really there for patients who were underserved or underinsured or didn't have insurance and got to really get my feet wet in clinical research, doing a lot of federally funded projects focused on health outcomes and preventing the spread of infectious disease. So really got to do like study coordinator work, data manager work, um, set up a little lab and learned a tremendous amount and grew up kind of in that hospital Moving up the ranks, eventually um, got a faculty position at UCLA in the Department of Medicine and was working on lots of my own grants and running my own group. And then uh, along the way there, I met the founding team at Science 37. We did a bunch of interesting research together. And in 2014, we really had the idea to you know, start thinking about how you could use telemedicine to see patients and sort of all spun out of UCLA and started Science 37 together and built that first platform doing virtual clinical trials. Um, did a lot of, I think, the pioneering work and thinking about what are DCTs, which we didn't even use that word back then in terms of what is a decentralized clinical trial. And spent four awesome years there learning, building, figuring out um, you know, what that looks like, how do we create studies that more people can access. And then in 20, 
18, I met my co-founders here at Lightship, and we were really focused on the idea of how we could provide more services to do what we then called direct-to-patient trials. And it's um, it's been an interesting journey and kind of that even just the nomenclature from how we started with virtual to direct-to-patient to, I think, even DCTs now that is pretty universally known. And we were a part of that shift and kind of founded this company here, Lightship, thinking about the service side, how could we build really a, an organization that could provide the best experience for both patients, providers, and then also working really well with global sponsors who have lots of um, things we have to build in terms of how to collaborate well with them, whether that's just like getting through vendor processes and having all the right SOPs. And that was where we started with the company. Um, I probably spent that first first part really doing a lot of operations and building the model. And now in 2022, moving into 23, uh, I get to spend a lot of my time really thinking about like what's coming next for clinical trials, where are we going and how can Lightship start to, you know, build that out and get ready for what's next. That's an amazing, uh, an amazing journey. And uh, I think it'd be difficult to find someone with more experience into how, how to actually conduct these more patient-friendly trials or decentralized trials or remote trials or whatever we want to call them. Um, and uh, very happy to talk about what's next here on this podcast. Um, so hopefully we can get to that. Um, so maybe to start off with uh, with the first topic that um, you also brought up when, um, when we spoke earlier, um, the... You know, obviously at Lightship, there's um there's a lot to do with interacting with patients and engaging with patients. Um, can you share some of your thoughts on on where we should take it as an industry and um, what some of the challenges are? And um, while, while we're engaging with patients and trying to be more inclusive and uh, add more diversity to our trials. Patient engagement is one of my favorite topics, uh, which is I think why we're starting with that on the podcast here today. And I, I think patient engagement in any clinical trial, even across healthcare, it's really, it's difficult to get right. Patients want to feel valued. They want to be a part of the journey with us in a clinical trial. Um, and they're very, you know, they're active. Patients are making sometimes some really tough decisions to be in a clinical trial or not. And what we have to build is really a way where we can build trust with patients and then continue to build that, you know, keep that trust, maintain it, make sure we're really communicating really well with patients. And I think there's elements of that that are both about, you know, people and how do we be very service oriented to the people in our trials and engage them really well, but also thinking about the technology side. There's a lot that can be done to use technology that I think is very, you know, automating it where we can, but also personalizing it as much as we can for patients. And I think what is really shifted is how we think about, you know, DCTs and patient engagement, where in traditional clinical trials, you know, a patient is oftentimes already in that doctor's practice, they're being seen by them, there's already an established relationship. And now in the decentralized model, we might be engaging patients that don't know us, have never, you know, heard of what we're doing or how we're doing it. They've never had a nurse come into their home. They might have not used telemedicine before. So those elements are all 
new. And so the trust building that we have to do is even, uh, I think, more important and more crucial for patients. And we really have to think about, you know, how do we have both like the training and support for like our own like site staff, our own doctors uh, to really engage patients in a great way, um, but also think about, you know, what what technology can we be using that makes that super helpful, easy for patients as well, so that we build that trust. People want to be in the study um, and they they want to, you know, maybe be in another one someday, too. Yeah, I think that's a super interesting perspective that I feel not a lot of people talk about sort of the importance of building trust with um, with the patient or trial participant that that hasn't been already been exposed to you know, their physician who would otherwise maybe recruit them into a trial. Um, can, you, can you speak practically how you how you achieve that? Sort of what are the steps you take to to do that? Because I feel like that could be really helpful for uh, for some of our listeners. It really starts with, I think, a lot of upfront planning. You know, how, what does the study look like? How is it going to run? Who who are the people that are going to be in this? Who are the people like we um, work with the patient advisory council, even in that regard, like how do we build um, an engagement plan from that first moment? Like what our first outreach is, what does it look like? What words and tone are we using? How are we doing that? Uh, so that it, you know, helps patients who might be looking at a study decide, okay, I want to take that step in saying this might be interesting for me. And, and then going forward, I think not only talking to like folks like our patient advisory council, but actually, you know, speaking with real patients who really have that condition for the clinical trial in the beginning so that you can incorporate all of that into the planning of the study, into thinking about, you know, what how are you reaching out to people? Is it advertising? Is it physician referrals? Is it through their healthcare system? So doing a lot of that planning upfront and then I think learning along the way, right? We don't always get it right the first time. And there's a lot we can do in learning from running you know, new studies and continuing to get feedback from patients both along the way and afterwards so that we can do a better job with the next one. Can you tell me a story of um, how this didn't go so well and what you learned from that and maybe how how it did go well. I'm just very curious to sort of get a look under the hood of how you make the connection with a potential trial participant to, to begin with, maybe through an ad or you know, some other kind of channel. And then um, how, how does that go and how does that sometimes feel and how does that go well? I'd love to sort of get in a more visual example of that. Yeah, sure. So I think an example where we've learned along the way is certainly when um, in the beginning of study, we had, you know, we've had some studies where we're doing, we're launching all, all of the outreach at the same time and then getting, I think, kind of inundated with the amount of um, patients saying, you know, picking up the phone, sending an email, um, signing up and wanting to talk to us. And I think, you know, certainly you can hit bumps in the road where, oh, wow, we actually don't have enough people to answer that phone call or get back to a patient really quickly with an email. And so that's step one, basically. Step one is a call, call us if you're interested, basically. Basically call us if you're interested, or you can email um, to say, you know, to say, hey, I'm interested in this study. And then that that's like the first moment in time, right, where a person is being exposed to either you as an organization or a clinical trial at all. And so if things happen, like you don't answer the phone and they have to leave a voicemail, 
or you never get back to them on that email, you know, that patient is going to go on to the next thing and they're going to kind of wonder, you know, what happened? Why didn't, why didn't anyone get back to me? And that, you know, starts to, I think immediately degrade that opportunity for us to start building. So how do you, how do you do that? Do you have like excess capacity in some kind of, um, you know, phone center or what do you, what do you call it? Call, call center? So it's been a lot, I think, learning and how, how do you resource that really well. And it it has been, you know, what at what point in time are we launching these campaigns? How do we, you know, how many people do we think will respond to them? Let's make sure people are, you know, there and ready. And you do, you have to build extra capacity that I think is sometimes challenging um, because certainly you don't, you don't. You know, I don't want to have a job and be sitting around waiting for someone to call me, but I also don't want to be completely inundated so that I can't do my job really well. So it's this it's this very fine balance that you have to find. And, you know, given that it's that first important moment, I think erring more on the side of over resourcing is a good idea until you figure out the flow of the study and how people are going to come in. And then is the, is the phone number available within certain like hours or do you also have sort of an on-call schedule or how do you how do you deal with that? I think it's actually very interesting, sort of the more practical sides of, of these problems. It can be uh, a challenge. So certainly when you're doing outreach, you oftentimes will say, you know, you you want that. Like call, call us anytime. 24-7, yeah. <laughs> we're always available. But yeah, the reality and the, the practical side of that is oftentimes you're working during business hours. You want to try and stretch that. Um, certainly when you're, you know, across time zones, there may be people, if you're on the East coast in the U S like very early in the morning. So if you've got a study coordinator who lives on the West coast, like you wouldn't sign it up that way in terms of how you're, um, working the hours. And then usually, you know, in a ideal scenario, and we always try to do this for our studies is really have a 24 seven number, or at least someone's answering um, and available and kind of a worst case, it's a, you know, it goes to voicemail, but the voicemail says, you know, we will call you back at this time in the morning. Uh, They know that someone will get back to them sort of first thing. So tell me about sort of the human touch. Okay, let's assume someone picked up the phone and now you're speaking to someone who is really excited about the opportunity to potentially get access to a cure that they don't have access to right now, or at least excited about the opportunity to help other patients um, in um, in a similar position. Um, how does that go? Is this, Are they going to be asking questions or is it like, hey, tell me about the study or what, what does the conversation look like and how do you build trust in that initial engagement? Because I'm assuming this is your one shot to get them further in the funnel, right? Yeah, it's one of the the most important pieces, I think, is that first like human touch where you're talking to each other. So it's usually a phone call. Uh, we start with explaining, you know, what is the study in a little more detail. Oftentimes the outreach may just be something very high level. So we'll share a little more detail, ask, you know, are there any questions that that person may have about the study in particular? And then oftentimes you start to ask them questions if they want to move forward around, you know, whether it's their medical history or where do they live or, you know, would they be okay with someone coming to their home? And I think also starting to really get into like, beyond like, okay, is this person qualified to be in the study? Are they interested? But also starting to figure out like on the trust building side, what, how does this person like to be spoken to? When do they, like, what are their modes of communication? Really thinking about their 
preferences and how we can tailor that next piece of engagement or they're taking, you know, when they're in the study, how do we really start to think about the, what, how they prefer to be engaged? Uh, I think the other thing we've learned is that patients, people in general, all really want to feel like valued and that they're actively a part of the study with you. So I think that first phone call is also a moment to start, you know, doing a bit around like acknowledging what their contribution or their actively taking part may mean, making sure we say small things. It sounds really small, but just saying, you know, thank you and being respectful of their time. I think, you know, we've gotten a lot of positive feedback around how that has helped build just that very initial relationship. So I saw, um, well, I had like a whole discussion with Brett Hightower on um, sending consent forms to the patient ahead of time, basically. And uh, he said like, uh, well, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't send um, a caster contract like to, to a prospect, right? Like they would come later in the process and then I was like, wow, there's like a thousand reasons why that's not a sensible comparison but then in the end it spun off into a separate discussion he made a post about well isn't isn't clinical research also a little bit like selling like you're selling the trial to to the patient and i was like well you know maybe there's some some similarities um and i was thinking about that like when you were speaking you know in a selling situation you would have all these tools to monitor calls and to listen into a call and to optimize the script and all that stuff is that something you do or do you just trust the person to use their empathy and their skill set to to say the right things or is there actually a process behind it where you observe uh, what people say you have like keyword tracking or any of that is there like sort of what is the approach it's a bit of both. So certainly having people um, working on the study who are empathetic, used to working with you know people and know how to talk to them in a really great way. That's those are kind of key traits we look for when uh, we're we're figuring out who who wants to do that type of work. But behind the scenes, yes, all of the metrics, analytics, figuring out you know how how long should we be talking to people on the phone, like what types of questions. In particular, when you're in the like very much of the like pre-screening, does this patient qualify type of thing, also thinking about how you optimize those. So there may be questions we realize we're asking people that actually they don't know that. They don't know that in the middle of a phone call. So, okay, maybe that's not the question to ask. <laughs> um, and you can start to optimize like that type of the scripting where you're making the questions either more clear or changing them out for new ones as you start to get that feedback around you know how how are people answering these questions how do they feel about them that i think is really really important for any study to be looking at uh i've i think in a lot of studies spent a lot of time looking at what end up being called basically funnel metrics where you're looking at all of this to see where, where are people dropping out and why, and then working to figure out how you can make that either easier, faster, better for the patient. And ultimately for figuring out, you know, how do we get the people who want to be in a study, but are also the most qualified. Super interesting. And um, what is, what is one of the most surprising things you've learned out of one of these, like out of these analytics that you generate basically, where you were like, okay, I didn't expect that. Cause I feel you can in, in like intuit a lot of these things, but what has been something that was came out of the blue? I think the, the out of the blue stuff has been the realization. Cause I think as like 
a clinical researcher and a scientist, I have always, you know, I've had that experience where it's, you know, okay, yeah, we know every condition, I know every medication. And then when you, you know, start engaging a lot of different people at, you know, in, in a phone call, they, they could be in their car, realizing that a lot of those things people may, they really may not know. They don't, you know, they may know they take a medication for their, you know, for the heart condition they have, but they aren't, you know, able to really articulate, okay, I have hypertension and I'm on lisinopril, for example, which is what you're trying to ask in that moment, but it's just not the right timing for maybe a first phone call with someone. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, and obviously probably later in the process, you're going to somehow get them to, you know, send um, their medical records to you. And then you probably have an opportunity to get to dig deeper into those, to those questions. Um, this is, this is, Super interesting. I, I have a hundred more questions on on this process, but um, I think maybe we can uh, uh, we can zoom out a little bit because I am I am wondering about. Why well, I have two big questions. So that, that maybe we'll save the next question for last because uh, it's a good place to end. Um, so when it comes to building trust and um, creating more awareness of, um, of of clinical trials, normalizing clinical trial participation, if you will, which I think is something we could do a lot better with. I think. COVID helped with creating a lot of exposure to the fact that clinical trials exist, but at the same time, probably also create maybe an even sort of bigger divide in, in some populations and a mistrust, um, unfortunately. Um, so what do you think we could do as, as you know, the industry, the community to, um, to, to so build trust from the ground up? We're not even talking about an individual trial yet. It is a lot of work that I am super interested in. It's one of the, it's it's honestly I think it's creating an enormous amount of awareness. Even you know I've worked in the clinical trial space my entire career. During COVID, it was the first time my parents were like, "Oh, you you work in clinical trials and and those are what you do, <laughs> right?" And and so when we think about that across the public, right, that was the first time there was probably really huge awareness. And, and just like you said, it had. I think some positive impacts in terms of people, you know, knowing what clinical research is, but also some negative ones in terms of um, how people felt about it. And so I think there's a lot more as an industry that we should all be doing around how do we create awareness for people? What does that look like in terms of, you know, is it these high level campaigns? Is it more grassroots community engagement? Is it thinking about like, should that actually be a part of like our educational system so that people learn more earlier as they're, you know, growing up? I think there's a ton of different ways to think about that. But I do think it is really important when we think about, you know, we want to create more access for people, but we really have to start with awareness so that they know what a clinical trial is and would even, you know, be interested in doing it, have the trust in a system that they don't really, you know, may not know or have been exposed to before that I, that I think, you know, starts with us starting to do just more, really more awareness building as an industry versus sort of, you know, waiting for a particular clinical trial. So what could that look like? Like what an ideal world, like, like let's, let's not say the ideal world, because that's easy. Realistically speaking, what could that look like? Because yeah, it's not going to just be Pfizer, you know, running a campaign, I guess, or maybe it is, but like, it's probably not the best way to do it. So what do you think is the most, uh, the best way to do it that that kind of gels with the actual reality of how the industry works right, right now? I think there's some organizations that are starting to do a bit of this where um, it's, it's going to be multi-pronged, but right there could be 
working with community health centers across, you know, across the nation, across the globe, ultimately, where you're, you're working to help, you know, patients in the community, people in the community, working with the people who work in those places to like, what is a clinical trial? What does it look like? How can it help you? How can it help your community? So that when you get to the stage of an actual clinical trial, people will go, oh, I know what that is. Like, that's interesting. I might want to do it. We could do more in like actual healthcare systems, right? Like I'm in a healthcare system. I don't think I've ever gotten an email, a conversation, anything about a clinical trial. Um, so doing more about that, more there. I think there's some- well, interesting- Who's going to organize that? Who's going to go to the health systems and say, hey, by the way. <laughs> by the way, we should do this. Yeah, I'm wonder. I mean, be interesting. Payers could maybe push for it if they start to view clinical trials as a real way uh, for some patients to get treatment or preventative care. I I think that might be an interesting place for it. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, just the upstream work that ultimately uh, reduces the amount of cost that should be reimbursed. So yeah, it's an interesting concept. See if we can bring it to them. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so final few minutes here. Um, you mentioned like I'm out there looking at what's next. So what is next? Metaverse or something on the blockchain or something much more mundane that actually delivers value? And uh, what what what's next? Could be a little bit of all of it. Um, I do. No, I mean, jokes aside, I do think the metaverse is interesting in terms of like we could be using that for like augmented training for people in in research and like how do you you know we talk about doing visit simulations all the time and doing those in something like the metaverse or an augmented you know AR VR scenario. I think would be great. Um, but that's a small sort of segment of thinking about, you know, how do we train people working on clinical trials so that and it's not, you know, sitting in a portal being <laughs> watching videos. I think the big, what feels like to me is sort of big picture next, like what is coming. There's, I think I've been a pretty big cultural shift, at least in the US and thinking about, you know, a, like, what does equity really mean? At the same time, we're having, I think, a, a much bigger awareness of like climate change, climate consciousness. What more can we be doing to honestly be a more sustainable society? That I think uh, those all come together and thinking about, you know, how do we think about clinical trials? And I mean, you mentioned Brad Hightower, right? We've seen the picture of all the lab supplies that he's just got to go throw away in study kits. You know, how do we think about running clinical trials that are more sustainable, whether that's thinking about the, the supply chain, the packaging, you know, what are the trade-offs of a nurse visiting a patient at home versus a patient going into clinic? Uh, how do we start to do that in a more sustainable way that is better for us as people and the environment? So that's what I think is coming next. Yeah, I think it will, it will have to come next. I think it's un, it's unavoidable. And, uh, you know, it's one of the things. Um, I've always said, you know, if, if we're going to extend, um, you know, that's why I focus on health span because I think health span is more important than lifespan. But like we're probably going to inadvertently extend the human lifespan, so we should think holistically about what that means for for the planet. So I think that's a great, uh, great place to end on. Um, Sam, thank you so much. This I think has been super insightful and practical. Um, expecting a lot of positive feedback from our listeners. Um, 
any uh, last words before we uh, wrap up the recording? Uh, just thanks. This was fun and I enjoyed it. And thanks everyone for listening in. And um, people can feel free to reach out on LinkedIn to me too. I'm always happy to chat, share ideas, talk about things, uh, talk about what Lightship does and how we can support other people in the work they're doing. Okay. Excellent. Thanks so much, Sam. Thank you.